Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are dealing with the priestly author, right? We're in Leviticus. So we are dealing with the priestly school and what the priestly school cares about. What do we know the priestly school cares about? You can unmute if you want to answer at home. What does the priestly school care about? The priests. And what are the priests' area of interest? What is their, what are they worried about? What are they concerned about? What are they thinking about all the time? What are they legislating about? Sacrifice. Uh, some Ritual of it is sacrifices. Most of it is about purity. Most of the priestly concern is about purity. Why? We have to remember, for the priestly writers and for priestly theology, God is not involved in human behavior. The God that the priests are concerned about is a God who is only pure and only holy and is a force that doesn't walk in a garden and doesn't talk to human beings and doesn't get involved and doesn't worry about what we do or don't do. It is a force, and the priests are worried about and concerned about keeping that force of of complete purity. How do limited, finite, impure beings, because we go through periods of purity and impurity, remember regularity and dysregularity, just by being human, right? Just by having sexual relations, just by tripping over a dead squirrel, just by doing those things, that's corpse contamination, right? So just by being human and living in the material world of the world of humanity, we're going to experience impurity. So, and also through sin, right? That brings impurity. There's just lots of ways that we're dealing with impurity. So the priestly concern is how do you mitigate between a force that is just purity and holiness and infinite and this finite group of creatures who move in and out of purity, since this force can't be where there's impurity. If you want that force part of your world, at the center of your world, at the Mishkan or in the temple, then you have to mitigate the impurities so that force can be there. That's what the priests are worried about. That's it. Until this point in Leviticus, they don't care about ethics and morals. They are not interested in that. It's not that it's not important. It is not their realm of concern. That's for somebody else to deal with. The priests know that that's an issue. You shouldn't lie and steal and kill and all those things, of course. But their job is not to legislate that. Their job is to legislate how you can mitigate the relationship between an infinite force of complete purity and these creatures that move in and out of purity and in and out of this and sin and mess up and draw impurity to the sancta. Like, how do you do that? That's what the priests are worried about. So into that realm of behavior, we saw emissions from a penis, from a vagina that are normal, that render one impure. We've seen ones that are not pure, uh, not pure, that are not regular and what that does and, and what the treatment is for that to, to come back, for a person to come back to a state of ritual purity. Okay, so that is not about ethics. You can't eat a vulture. You can't eat a crab. You can't eat whatever. That's not about ethics. That's about categories of holiness and purity and how one remains in a state of purity so that one can be involved with the sancta. Because if you're impure, you cannot be involved with the sanctity. If you draw impurity through sin, and that means you know eating the wrong thing or whatever, you, you, you draw impurity to the sanctity. Okay, so we get that, and we're fine with that. And then we come to this week, and we come to the triennial for this week, and we come to, oh, here we go. And what I wanted, the reason I did this whole long introduction is to say this week's text is no different then all of those things we said that this is permitted to you, that's not. You can eat this. If you eat that, it's toeva. It's an abomination. Do you remember we said, here's what is abominated among the birds, right? The verb for abomination, 
right? This is abominated. You shall abominate this from the birds and from this class of eating things you can eat. And this class, abomination is what is used when you talk about what's taboo. So it is no different when we come to the text this week, which are dealing with what? Sexuality. Okay. Permitted and not permitted sexual activity. This is directed at men. Right? This just it's just the reality. This was directed at male behavior. And because the Israelite male is being addressed in most of these laws. Um, and so so Torah is concerned, the priestly Torah is concerned with permitted and forbidden sexual activity the same way it is about eating. Sexual appetite is normal, it is natural as is the desire and the appetite to eat. And just like eating is expected and eating is a good thing, you have to, though, stay within the ways you're allowed to satisfy the desire to eat, your appetite. Same with the sexual appetite. It is normal. It is natural. It is a good thing. It's expected. Go for it within the bounds of what is permitted. So I just want us to move into this text with that understanding of that is what's going on here and nothing more than that. Because people want to take this and do all kinds of things with it that they don't do with you can't eat swine, it's abomination. All right, so here we go with the uh, triennial text. So God says to Moshe saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelite people and say to them, this is what Yudhei has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel slaughters an ox or sheep or goat in the camp or does so outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Yudhei before God's tabernacle, blood guilt shall be imputed to that party. Having shed blood, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So what is this saying? This is saying the only meat that can be eaten is sacrificial meat. That if you kill an animal and you're not using it as a korban, as a way to come close to the divine and draw the divine close and share it with God and the priests or your family, depending on what kind of offering it is, you are guilty of killing. That is not okay. It is, is blood guilt and you're in trouble. What does it mean when they say cut off from your kin? It, we, it's another conversation. Okay. So um, there is a lot of interpretation about what that might mean. Some people say it means you will die a early death without having heirs. So you are cut off from uh, progeny, you know, building the people and that way you're cut off. Some people say there's lots of interpretations. The rabbis say it can mean, you know, that spiritually you are, you are segregated for a while. Nobody's really sure. It does not tell us um, what that means. Um, But it, but, but it's not anything that happens visibly you know what I mean? Like, it's not like all of a sudden this person can't speak <laughs> to their people, right? It's like, who knows? Because it never happened, right? You couldn't see it happen. So who knows? Uh, but the rabbis go to town with it. This is in order that the Israelites may bring the sacrifices which they've been making in the open, meaning they used to make it in the open. They used to be able to sacrifice wherever they were. Now you can't do that at local shrines, you Israelites. Now they have to bring them before Adonai to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting and offer them as sacrifices of well-being to Yudhei So you used to could worship at local shrines. You could take your animal and do whatever you wanted. This is a priestly text saying, no, you have to do it at the temple, right? So the centralization of sacrifice and worship that the priest may dash the blood against the altar of God at the entrance of the tent of meeting and turn the fat into smoke as a pleasing odor to Yudhei that they may offer their sacrifices no more to the goat demons after whom they stray. This shall be to them a law for all time throughout the ages. Then, you know, this guy to my right is going to ask, who are the goat demons? Were they sacrificing to goat demons? So we don't know. We assume it's local traditions and customs around the early Israelites that obviously there was some syncretistic worship that never really stopped. Don't tell anybody. Um, And so they continued to do these kind of syncretistic things. Priests say, absolutely not. No good. No Christmas tree in the living room. You can't call it a Hanukkah bush. We know it's a Christmas tree, even though you call it a Hanukkah bush. Say to them further, if anyone from the house of Israel or the strangers who reside among them offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it, they'll be cut off from their people. Um, Okay, no partaking of blood, no flesh with blood in it. 
Um, right? So you have to pour out the blood because you can't eat the blood. All right, so we get that. So Leviticus 18. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, I am Yudhei your God. Here's the important thing that Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler is going to pick up on um, and run with. You shall not copy the practices of the land of Egypt where you dwelt or of the land of Canaan to which I am taking you, nor shall you follow their laws. So this is a statement about Israelite particularity. This becomes a concern Right. And, and it's a concern that continues to this day. Right. People continued with Kashrut in some ways to say we don't want to eat with the neighbors because that leads to dancing. Right. And so that is a dangerous thing. If you are interested in particularity, in maintaining your identity as different from the peoples around you, that was the case for the Israelites entering Canaan, meaning the, the Israelite that the Israelites that emerged in the land of Canaan, wanting this new Yahwist religion, wanting to be different from the religions it came out of. Um, and it remains true for us because we have been in Galut, in uh, exile. Different. The language of our tradition is chosen. I would say, the, and I don't say this out there because it's too confusing and it's too long an explanation, but I would say chosen to be Israelite, chosen to be in relationship with yud Hey vav Hey in this way, either way, like we are, right, that the spirit of the universe moves through this people this way, so we have been chosen to do this. Other people have been chosen to relate to this, you know, force that we call the divine in their way and choose in response to that what they want to do with that, right? So I don't mind chosen when we talk about everybody's chosen, um, but it's too much to do out there. So I just talk about rejecting the language of chosenness because it's too complicated, but you can reconstruct it in the view of th- these texts that say you are to be a particular people with your own practices, not Egyptian practices and not Canaanite practices. And to some extent, isn't that what we still do? We have to mitigate what are the what are the things we don't want to be about American civilization as Jews? And what do we want to incorporate from American civilization? We still want as a people to say there are some things we reject from the majority culture and always have. All right. No, 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 no. My rules alone, meaning, you know, Yahwist rules, shall you observe and faithfully obey my laws. I, yud am your God. You shall keep my laws and my rules by the pursuit of which human beings shall live. This is another important point. Right, that you shall vachai bahem ani Adonai. This is probably one of the most repeated two words, just as tiny little two words in the middle of a you know pasuk in the middle of a sentence. Some of the most repeated vachai bahem. You shall live by them. So we're gonna, if we have time, we're gonna go there um, with Rabbi Aaron Liebsmuckler. None of you people, right? But ish ish. It's very clearly man shall come near any one of his own flesh to uncovered nakedness. I am Yodhei Vavi. Here's how we know it's addressed to men. Ish, ish, right? A man, a person shall not come near any one of his own flesh to uncover nakedness. I am Yodhei Vavi. Uncovering nakedness means to become intimate sexually. So, any one of your own flesh. This is a prohibition against incest, which is almost universal in some form or fashion. Richard? Uh, can we go back just one sure. verse? When, by which human beings live. Mm-hmm. So is that particular, all you all? It, it is to Israelites. Uh, so the, so there's, it's not all human have to follow. Correct. This is just... Rules. Just Israelite humans. Uh, la, 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 la. Your father's nakedness, that is the nakedness of your mother, meaning the nakedness of your mother belongs to your father. You do not have permission to uncover nakedness that is your father's, meaning your father's possession, your father's control. That means your mother's nakedness because only your father has access to your mother's sexuality. That's how it's supposed to be. What else? Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, meaning you as a son can't approach your stepmother. You don't have 
access to her sexuality. It belongs to your father. So it's like incest, right? In that you are encroaching on your father's sexual territory. That's incest. So this is not really about her. It's about your father. You're coming close to your father. You're coming too close sexually to your father by sleeping with his wife, whether she's your mother or not. They had multiple wives at that yes. time. Yes, it's assumed. So, right. Absolutely, it's assumed. Right, po- polygamy is assumed. The nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's, whether born into the household or outside, do not uncover their nakedness. The nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, do not uncover their nakedness, for their nakedness is yours, meaning it's too close. It's your flesh. We just got told you can't approach your own flesh for sexual relations. Their nakedness is yours, meaning it's your. It's too close to you. It's considered incest. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter who was born into your father's household, she is your sister. Do not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's flesh. So that's too close to you. It's considered incest. Do not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's flesh. So that now it's too close to mom for you to approach sexually. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. Do not approach his wife. She is your aunt, right? Do not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is the nakedness of your brother. Do not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take into your household as a wife, her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter and uncover her nakedness. They are kindred. It is depravity, right? We're getting lots of interesting words here to, uh, to uh, terms. Do not take into your household as a wife, a woman, as a rival to her sister. Remember Rachel and Leah and uncover her nakedness in the other's lifetime. It's just not nice. Right. It's it's not nice and it causes a lot of problems. Do not come near a woman during her menstrual period of impurity to uncover her nakedness. Do not have carnal relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not allow any of your offspring to be offered up to Molech and do not profane the name of your God. I am Yudhei Here we go. What people want to lift out of this text and forget everything else. Ready? Here we go. Do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. This has abhorrence, but let's be clear. People always translate it as toeva, abomination. The Hebrew is indeed toeva, abomination. Just like what you abominate among the birds that you can't eat. Do you see how much intimate relationship is forbidden until we get to this verse? Right. This verse is just another example of the things you are not supposed to do regarding sexuality, because sexuality has very clear categories. Your flesh is a category that is off limits to you because it crosses a boundary that the priests are very concerned with maintaining. So so it is the same, argue many scholars, with this verse. That, that this is crossing a boundary that is of concern to the priest. So let's look, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we've done this before. Those of you who are interested in hearing the explication of this verse, go to the, the last time or two times or three times ago that I, in a minute, Judith, that I've taught this text, um, the third triennial reading for this Parsha. It is there. We had a long conversation about it. Um, what I want to do is just look exactly at the, Hebrew and translate it. Barry's here. He can keep me honest. Ve'et zachar, right? So dealing with zachar, a male, lo tishkav. So a male, lo tishkav, will not lay mishkavei isha, the layings of a woman. Toevahi, it is an abomination. What is the actual prohibition? It's to, these are directed to Israelite men. What is the prohibition here? Exactly. Dressing like a Submission. Sexual submission to penetration by a penis. 
That is what is off limits to a male. A male shall not lie the lyings of a woman. That is what it means. Men are designed by nature to penetrate, not to be penetrated. Therefore, you are crossing another boundary to lie the lyings of a woman as a man. That makes perfect sense in the priestly system. People want to lift this up and take it as something that it just isn't in the text. All right, Judith. All of this seems to me to be a prohibition that protects the continuation of the people. Sociologically, the prohibitions prevent inbreeding, so to speak, and the destruction of the linear quality of a people. You have to have a wider genealogical um, base from which to work for people to grow. I think that that is a consequence, Yes, a healthy consequence of this. I think, A, a lot of this is instinct. You don't sleep with your sister. Like, it's just a lot of this is human, what we would call terrestrial human culture. Like, every human culture has an understanding of incest. The rules may change. But every, every human culture has an understanding that incest is wrong. Uh, again, they may move the boundaries of where that is. The, the result of that is a healthier genealogical base. I'm not sure it's where it starts, that we need, a, we need to not inbreed. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think that's where it starts. But, but I think that would be almost a natural inclination as well, that that inbreeding would occur. I think that's a natural feeling that it would prohibit the growth of, of the tribe. So there are other things that are in here, a lot of them, that have nothing to do with what the, what the outcome would be biologically. You're, you can't sleep with your father's wife, even if you're not related to her. That has nothing to do with the genealogical line. It has to do with social lines. <laughs> That's what you were going to say, Richard. Right. So there are social inbreeding, right? There's, there's ways that you cross a line that is about social what do we call it? Um, there's biological family and social family. And so social family is the same to the priests as biological family in, in being forbidden in terms of crossing that line. Same with, and I want to, and I want to tie these together, 22 and 23, not the way a lot of people do, right? You know, homosexuality leads to bestiality. Um, but, Right. Do not have carnal relations with any beast and defile yourself thereby. Likewise, for a woman, she shall not lend herself to a beast to mate with it. It is perversion. Both men and women are forbidden from lying sexually with animals. It is crossing a boundary that is no different from the verse before it. A man shall not cross the boundary of being penetrated as a woman is because he's a man. So he's not supposed to do what women do. Right. So. This is very clearly the same kind of category. Notice women are not forbidden from being penetrated by another woman. So men and women are undressed in 23. So Torah knows you you need to include the women if you want the women to be prohibited. And it it did not escape the rabbi's notice that women were not forbidden from laying with other women. There's no prohibition on women doing, because who cares? They're women. All right. Do not defile yourself in any of those ways, for it is by such that the nations that I am casting out before you defiled themselves. That Thus the land became defiled, and I called it to account for its iniquity, and the land spewed out its inhabitants. So what's the real concern of the priests? If y'all do this stuff, it's going to contaminate the land. <clears throat> and if you contaminate the land to too to great a degree, what's going to happen? It's going to spit you out. You are not entitled to live on the land unless you, you, you don't defile it. I don't know how to say that in the positive, right? You must keep my laws and rules. You must not do any of those abhorrent things, neither the citizen nor the stranger who resides among you. For all those abhorrent things were done by the people who were in the land before you, and the land became defiled. So let not the land spew you out for defiling it as it spewed out the nation that came before you. So some of this is the priestly justification for how Israel could take land that belonged to Canaanites. Because the Canaanites were busy with the sheep and with their father's wives and like, right, doing stuff they're not supposed to do. So they were dispossessed 
and you Israelites get to possess it. Richard, in the book that the tome that you gave me is going to take me the rest of my life to read, right? They're talking about the arguments used by white Europeans to take land from indigenous people because they weren't improving the land by working the land. Therefore, they were part of the land. Therefore, it's up for grabs. Everybody uses some kind of justification. And as crazy as we think this justification is, try the justification the Europeans used, right, for taking this land from the people who are here before them. It, it's a justification and people buy it and it's crazy. And when we read it now, it's crazy. And yet it's not that long ago. And we're sitting here because people bought it as an excuse, right? People bought the excuse. Okay. So that's the end of this. That's the end of the Parsha, right? Okay. We did the whole text people. Aren't you proud of me? We did the entire triennial text in record time. All right, so I'm going to stop sharing for just a second. Is there anybody who has anything to say about where we are so far? Um, there's this wonderful book by my teacher of blessed memory, Tikva Freimarkensky, called In the Wake of the Goddesses. This book is just amazing. It is um, Women, Culture, and the Biblical Transformation of Pagan Myth. So it's her her uh, exploration of, because she was an expert in Ugaritic and Akkadian. Um, they brought things they found in the archaeological expeditions. Um, they brought them to Tikva for Dr. Freimarkensky um, to translate and, or to authenticate you know, other people's translations. She was an expert in, uh, in the religions and the texts and the language of pre-Israelite culture. Um, and so she talks about the ideas that would have given rise to a lot of this priestly stuff in early Israel coming out of already Canaanite and pagan understandings of categories and the ways categories need to be maintained. So it's a, it's a wonderful text as relates to, uh, Leviticus, uh, what was that? 17 that, that we just studied. Um, and, and I, I can't, Anyone who wants to know more about this stuff, I can't, uh, I can't recommend her enough. I'll just read one paragraph. Ostensibly, ostensibly, the Bible considers human sexual behavior to be part of human society rather than the natural God-created order. These laws channel this behavior into its proper family structure, providing the proper outlet for the force of sexual attraction. But these very laws reveal that sexual attraction has the capacity to destroy society. It could blur the lines of family and rip families apart. It could lead to the assimilation into the nations of Israel, which was concerned to keep itself distinct. Sexual attraction could lead to behavior that could pollute the land and imperil Israel's right to occupy it. Sexual activity could even blur the categories of human existence and could cause the collapse of civilized order um, into cosmos, meaning the original chaos. Wrongful sexual activity can bring disaster to the world. So if that is your understanding of the world, all of this makes sense, right? Then we need to know what, where, where, are the, where are the lines, where are the boundaries? So it's funny, funny, not funny, haha, but interesting, funny, that I came in this morning and found this. Um, don't tell anybody, but it means that someone who had it in an envelope in their mailbox took it out and left it because they're not going to read it. So um, I picked it up to read just what's in here. And what did I find just this morning? What did I find? A religious approach to sexual behavior for our liberal communities from a dialogical Jewish perspective. So lest we think this topic is not relevant anymore, discussions about sexual energy, the force of sexuality and what it means for us and what to do with it is still being written about by rabbis in a liberal Jewish context. It's not like, okay, pff, this doesn't mean anything anymore. We've had the sexual revolution. We can do what we want. And what I love about this article, because I just got a chance to scan it, I didn't have a chance to read it, um, but what he's saying is that we, we have ignored the power, the compelling power of Eros in Judaism for too long. And Mark, I'll make you a copy because like it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in here that you'd love. Um, 
that you too, George, um, would love. And all y'all at home, I see Siegel and um, where'd he go? Ed, Dreyfus. Like, so th there's lots of stuff in here that's really interesting about um, super ego. Uh, uh, anyway, um, so, uh, so a similar call you, has also emerged from the circle of Jewish thinkers themselves, especially known in this regard as Judith Plaskow who already during the 1980s encouraged Jewish thinkers of our time to shape a theology of Eros, the same one that the absence of which so engaged the scholar he was talking about by reconceptualizing sexuality as a most positive form of human energy that unites the spiritual and the physical. Um, and that we should be talking to young people, he's arguing. Um, he says, I suggest discussing sex openly with the young, saying that speaking both ethically and theologically, Judaism has sufficient su sources that support and indeed that encourage a retreat from judgmentalism around right sexuality. Um, and so that we should actually be talking about sexuality as a positive force. Um, and I'll just close with this. Um, he's talking about um, restraints on our sexuality must come from a deeper understanding of the meaning of intimacy and of the sacred role that this instinct can and should play in the inner life of adult Jewish people. When the time is right, Eros can be the power that takes a person out of their narcissistic narrow place and leads um, such toward an intimate dialogical relationship with a future partner. Why aren't we talking to young people about something that has the power to pull us when it's used right and as we talk about it openly and honestly and figure out what, what we think about what's permitted and not permitted for us ethically and morally, then it can be a, it is a hugely positive force to pull one out of one's own obsessive or in this term narcissistic engagement with self and allows one to to meet the needs of the other with one's own erotic force and 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 set of of desires for those of us who can't see that what is the name of the book and who's the it's not a book uh, it is the reformed jewish quarterly and the author the author of this piece is Admiel Kosman, if you want to see how it's spelled. Um, okay. Uh, many years ago, I was uh, tutoring in English, uh, a sixth grade girl, and she was pretty bright, but she had other problems, so I got to tutor her. And she wanted to pick a book out of the library, which she did, and I said it was fine. You know, it's in the school library. And it was about the ancient Egyptians where they did not have these rules and uh, they slept with brothers Torah starts. What does Torah start with? You shall not do what the Egyptians did. Right. But at, at this age, she was, let's see, sixth grade is 11, 12 years old. And she thought it was terrible. So even at that age, uh, she had some norms of her own. You know, I explained different cultures and all that and what they're young. Saying, you know? So even at that young age, yes. you're saying she had an instinct that said, ew. Yes. Right. Now, remember, we have that same instinct around eating things that other people eat happily that we don't. Right. So a lot. Some of it is cultural. Some people would argue it's THC, terrestrial human culture. Everybody, every culture has some idea of ew regarding who you're not supposed to have sex with. Um, but who that is, obviously, ranges hugely. Um, and I don't know that all Egyptians were allowed to sleep with their sisters. I, I'm not sure. It may have been royalty, right? I'm not. I'm not positive. I don't think every family in Egypt understood that it was okay to. I'm not. I don't know. I'm just saying. My my guts tell me it's probably a royal marriage to preserve the royal bloodline. But I could be wrong. Okay. So we'll do a little bit of smokler just because it, I just, you know how much I love the creativity of our tradition. And so I just want to show you a little bit of it. All right. This is why it is written. So now she's quoting, remember, she's teaching from the Sfatimet, right? Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Ger Rebbe, that we studied with one teacher through IJS for a year. And we look at their Torah commentary for a year. We are with Rabbi Aaron Leib Smokler. She's the one who gave me the idea for the sermon on Davar Mu'at, the almost-ness. Um, it was her talk at um, Hartman that, that was the basis of that sermon. 
So I, so I love, I, she's just brilliant. So, um, so this is her commentary. She's giving us the Sfat Emet. This is what the Sfat Emet says on our verse from Torah. This is why it is written, you shall live by them. For, okay. For every limb gleans vitality through the mitzvah that is unique to it. The mitzvah elevates and fixes that limb. And then there's a quote, a proof text um, to support that. Like this, every mitzvah that a person does before the blessed one, the mitzvah elevates that person and guides its limb, as it is suggested in the Midrash, for they are a graceful wreath upon your head, a necklace about your throat. God brought us to the land of Egypt and to the land of Canaan for our merit, for us to fix all the sparks, meaning raise up all the broken right pieces uh, from Kabbalah, as is brought in Vayikra Rabbah on the verse, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. And the words that proceed, you shall live by them. We just read the words, and you shall live by them, right? You shall not copy the practices of the land of Egypt where you dwelt. How do you say it? where you dwelt? Barry in Hebrew, asher yashavtem. Asher, just remember that. In which, which, that, asher yashavtem, you dwelt. Nor shall you follow their laws are similar to the teachings in the Talmud, on the words, God said to Moses, carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, plat tablets, which you shattered. Asher, that word again. The Talmud says, Reish Lakish said, the word asher is an allusion to the phrase, you ready for this? Yashar koach, for breaking the tablets. All was done to merit Israel. All right, what is the Sfat Emet saying? It's his crazy town, but I love how crazy the rabbis are. All right, so what is what is what is the Sfat Emet saying? The Sfat Emet is saying that verse that we got that said you shall live by them. What does that mean? You shouldn't do what the people do, right? In the place Asher Yashavtem, the place Asher that you lived in, you won't do that. Asher, huh? Well, that sounds a lot like, right? The tablets, Asher Shibarta. Oh, there's Asher again. The tablets that which you broke. Okay, so Asher is in both places. There must be a connection because Torah is the revelation and to all of it, right? Ain Mukdamun Murchar, there's no early or late in Torah. So if Asher is there and Asher is here, there must be a relationship. What's the relationship? The relationship says Reish Lakish in Talmud, Reish Lakish in the Talmud in Shabbat 87a says, what is the Asher when it comes to the tablets Asher you broke, that you broke? It's the hint to the fact that God said to Moshe when Moshe broke the tablets, Yashikoch. How could that be? How could it be that Asher Shibarta that you broke is Yashikoch? God made the tablets. God gave them to Moshe. God, God says, Moshe, take them down to the people. It's our marriage contract. It's the adoption papers. Go down. You have to take the document down because otherwise it's not finished, done. And so Moshe takes them down. The people are already screwing up. And Moshe breaks the tablets and God says, Yashukoch? <laughs> How crazy is that? All right, be thinking, be thinking. Right? It's all, says the Sfatimet, to merit Israel. How could the breaking of the divine gift of luchot, of tablets, created by the finger of God, written on with the finger of God. How could the shattering of those be to the merit of Israel? It's crazy. Y'all have to think about it, though. Think about it. What if it's a serious question? It was for the rabbis. She gives a serious answer. Exactly right. Um, after weeks of focus on purity and impurity, this is now Rabbi Smokler, Parshat Acharimot shifts to a focus on obedience. The first chapters address the penitence rituals of Yom Kippur, the latter, meaning our text, um, the holiness code, outlining sexual boundaries. In between, a set of verses calls for the separation of the Israelites from other nations and their commitments to God's commands. That was what we started with. But remember, what we start with is the beginning of the last third of this Parsha. 
So there's a bunch of stuff in the Parsha before this, which is what she's saying. And all of that is about the Yom Kippur ritual. Then we have an intermediate text, which is our text that we just read. Then we get all the sexual boundary stuff. All right, now she's going to focus on that middle text, right? You shall not do the practices of Egypt, right? Or the land of Canaan. You shall fulfill my ordinances. I am Yudhei your God. You shall observe my statutes, my ordinances, which a person shall do and live by them. I am Yudhei We just read that, yes? With Egypt behind them and Canaan ahead of them, the Israelites are enjoined to forge an identity of otherness. More broadly, they are not to fall prey to the routines of the past, nor to be allured by the novelties of the future, but to pledge allegiance to their own authentic path. You shall fulfill, meaning only, my ordinances and observe, and she adds in parentheses, only my statutes, says God. The consequence of doing so is that you shall live by them. Vachai bahem took on a distinctly legal meaning in the Talmud. To live by the word of God is not to die on account of it. So then she goes into this discussion about, so in other words, fundamentalist extremism that would lead you to blow yourself up on a bus for God is not allowed according to rabbinic law based on this verse. Vachai bahem. Remember I said the rabbis went crazy with this? That's what it means for them. You shall live by them and anything that you want to derive from these laws that diminishes life. By the way, this is an argument the rabbis make for abortion for women. That if if having that next child is going to compromise her being able to live a full life, you will permit the abortion. Right, So this has been used incredibly broadly by the rabbis to say anything that diminishes life of a living person, not a fetus, a living human, anything that diminishes that life is open then to, to override other statutes and laws and ordinances. Okay, So the rabbis, and that means also, by the way, this was Judith on our trip about conversos. This was the basis on which rabbis said when the people came to them desperate because they were told, if you don't convert to Catholicism during the Inquisition, you will be killed, you and your family. Um, Or if you have been forcibly converted and we find you Judaizing, you will be burned. This was the rabbinic thing that allowed them to say to someone, convert and secretly remain a Jew. V'chai bahem. Because all of these commandments are ones that should should end up with you living by them, not dying. You are not to martyr yourself um, because that's not it's not Jewish. Um, now, there are th- three things you're supposed to mar- die before doing. Um, so uh, but but I'm saying became a very broad uh, interpretation, okay? Yes, it does. Yes, don't don't diminish the joys and pleasures of your life that are permitted to you out of some sense of of religious fervor. It is not allowed. You should live well within the boundaries of what's permitted. Is that also the source of if you're ill, uh, you... Can't yes. fast on yes. Yom Kippur. Yes. And you can drive to the hospital yes. in an Orthodox on Shabbat. Yes. Vachai bahem. You shall live by them. So if anything's going to endanger life, pikuach nefesh, the saving of that life is paramount in, in Jewish law. Paramount. Like there's a whole rabbinic com- conversation in the Talmud about if a building collapses on somebody and it's Shabbos, can you dig them out? So, but there's a whole argument. You're required. Do you know there? Do you know they're al- It depends. Do you know they're alive? You're not allowed to dig through rubble on Shabbos to, to get a corpse out. So then the whole discussion becomes, are you doing that labor to, to get out a corpse or to get to pikuach nefesh to possibly save a life? So I'm telling you, it's, it's a huge, huge category. It's a huge definer of what's allowed and what's not allowed in our tradition. But I want to go on. Because there's a lot here. 
uh, so what is this business about the limbs? I love this too. Every limb gleans vitality through the mitzvah that's unique to it. She says every part of the body can be called into service through mitzvot. Those activities that bind humanity and divinity. Every mindful practice can arouse the part that performs it to greater consciousness, intention, and wholeness. How beautiful is that? The head and the throat referenced in that verse from Proverbs through thought and song, for example. So the wreath around the head, the necklace around the throat from the Song of Songs means the mitzvot that, that are related to thinking. But when we use our brain for positive intentional purposes, it, it, it brings the brain into a state of greater consciousness, intention, and wholeness. When we use our voices to praise each other to praise God, to sing, to like do all of the joyful stuff that comes with singing, then the throat, right, comes to a place of greater consciousness, intention, and wholeness. When we use our hands and arms to play or make a violin, let's say, right, our hands and arms are lifted up, right? They, I, I just think it's a beautiful teaching. It's so Jewish to me that. All, every mitzvah, any part of the body that fulfills any mitzvah gets lifted. And that's what we're about, right? This, this combination of physical and spiritual, it is about the relationship. It's about the moving back and forth between them. And I just think that is so Jewish and so not Greek and so not the split that we live with in the West. In the Song of the Sea, there's that line we sing sometimes, Aziv Zimrakya, God is my song. We're going to sing it tonight. Come to Shabbat on the rocks. Mm -hmm. We're singing Oziva Zimratya tonight. But God is my song, that that my whole life is singing to God. Always struck me in the same. Yep. Every single inch of the body can awaken and be awakened. Vachai Bahem. And we can truly vibrantly live. All right. Look look what I did, y'all. This is how big a nerd I am. I went to Safaria to the playground and made a whole text sheet. that is five pages long, on Asher, Yasher Koach, Sheshibarta. Yasher Koach, that you broke the tablets. We're not going to get there. But um, isn't that crazy? Look, it's like five pages. Okay. So um, so she quotes Asher Shibarta, that you broke. I became fascinated and a little bit obsessed. I'm not going to lie. It's maybe a high holiday sermon. I, I've, I've heard this teaching before, but I haven't really ever sat with it this way and then looked up other texts related to it. What could it possibly mean that Moshe breaks the tablets and God says, Yashar Koch, and it was to the merit of Israel? How, how could that be? So then I explored that in a bunch of texts, which I wish we had the time to do because they're very fun. Uh, one sentence in Hebrew becomes an elaborate one in English. It also becomes a rather perplexing claim. The tablets shattered by Moses are compared to the Jewish experience in Egypt, which nearly shattered them. So this is one interpretation. Just as Moses was ultimately congratulated for his seemingly irreverent act, Yasher Koach, Asher Shibarta, um, Yasher Koach, that you broke them, well done for breaking, so our time in Egypt is lauded. It's as if Reish Lakish, the one who said that, Yasher Koach, Asher Shibarta, um, well done, Yasher Koach, that you dwelt there. What? How is that an explication? We just celebrated Passover, and we know well that Egypt is not a place we wish to dwell in again, nor are the Meitzarim, the narrow places that Egypt signifies, but still suggests the Rebbe. There are congratulations to be offered to those who have weathered the experience for making the simple but no less extraordinary movement from constriction to expansiveness, Yasher Koach, for having made it. Well done for having sat in a constricting space and nevertheless finding a pathway to move forward toward life. Every limb can be an instrument of our liberation, can celebrate life, even perhaps especially those that have been wounded by it. Yashrakach. Thank you, Mark. But right, oh my God, you have to love this tradition, people. Yashukoach, Moshe, that you broke the tablets because what you are demonstrating is a shattering that happened to this people for 400 years. Suffering, constriction, oppression, 
hopelessness, despair, maybe even cynicism, God forbid, right? Disengagement from the political process, let's just say, possibly. One could get there. Let's just imagine. If it gets bad enough, one could maybe imagine. I know we couldn't imagine that in a democracy, but, um, and here we are. And so like they're saying the Rebbe's Fatimet is bringing it to say the shattering is about what happens to us. Brokenness is a part of our lives. That's not the end of the story. What's the end of the story? Moshe gets another set. And that set stayed and lasted. And that's the covenant that's in place till today. That the, there had to be a breakage because that's reality. And Yashukoach to every single one of us who have sat in the narrow, constricting, oppressive, painful, awful, depressing, hopeless place of agony and somehow have figured out a way to move toward life. Yashukoach. Yashukoach. Not Yashukoach that you've lived a perfect life with a whole set of tablets and Moshe brings them down and God is happy and the people are happy and then they have a party and the venue is lovely and the wine was fantastic and the flowers, oh, you should have seen the flower. That's not our story. That's not a Jewish story. The Jewish story is that was the vision. But the ring fell through the cracks of the stage into the sand. Not that that ever has happened to me at a wedding. Never. And now it's gone. That's a story, <laughs> right? And so that's our story. That Of course the tablets come down, and of course the people are messing up. And God is hurt and disappointed and furious. And Moshe's confused and furious, but also feels bad for them and is torn and is caught and his loyalty is divided. And, and, and he breaks them. That's a Jewish story. Because that's a human story. That it involves, no matter how big the dream is, no matter how beautiful the vision of this relationship is and how you want it to go, that's not what's going to happen. doesn't mean we can't have moments of vision and hope and clarity about how we want things to go and work towards it. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it's still not going to go that way. (laughs) And yet we somehow figure out how to move towards life. Bahai Baham. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.